Hello everyone and welcome back to Love is the Message. This is part two of the interview Jeremy and Tim conducted with Daphne Brooks about her excellent new book, Liner Notes for the Revolution, The Intellectual Life of Black Feminist Sound. Hopefully you've all listened to part one already that we released a fortnight ago. If you haven't, do go back and check that out. In this episode, we catch up with the second half of the discussion around that book. We also touch on the excellent film Summer of Soul and the recent passing of two titans of black writing about music and so much more, Bell Hooks and Greg Tate. Once again, we're really grateful to Daphne for giving her time for this extra long interview and we hope you'll enjoy what you hear. Pass it over to Tim now who pick up where we left off. Yeah, so, um, I mean, there's a number of uh, uh, contemporary artists that you, you discuss, Janelle Monet, uh, Rhiannon Giddens, yeah. uh, Valerie June, of course, yeah. Beyonce as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, we did we did, man, we did talk about uh, Janelle Monet in um, an episode. Uh, uh, yeah, uh, we did a three-part uh, mini-series for our patrons on Afrofuturism. You've been asking me the same questions. And second guessing all my intentions Should know by the way I use my compression That you got the answers to my confessions and she is a particularly fascinating figure. So um, be, I'd really love you to talk about uh, Janelle Monet and what oh, you what you yeah, what sure. you write about about her in sure. the book. Yeah. Well, if we wanna talk about Janelle Monet, I always say we have to talk about her liner notes that she um, produced in collaboration with the Wonderland Arts Collective. If we go back to the idea of ensemble, um, you know, she'd be the first person to say, you know, my work has been produced in the round with these other just, you know, extraordinary and electrifying um, African-American bohemian experimentalist thinkers and creators and creatives um, um, in the Atlanta art scene, a part of, came out of the Atlanta art scene. Um, Two in particular, Chuck Lightning and Nate Wonder, um, both of whom went to to Morehouse. There are other folks who are part of that ensemble too, Roman G and Arthur. Um, Oh my God, it was like, it's this incredible mashup record of D'Angelo's Brown Sugar and um, Radiohead's OK Computer, which everybody should listen to. <laughs> so it gives you an idea of just the, again, the range of um, what the folks in her world were trying to do with pushing the boundaries of how blackness um, is perceived to sound and, and as well as look and feel. Um, but Chuck and, and Nate in particular, I've had the pleasure of um, engaging with on a variety of different levels. And they've visited um, one of my classes in the past when I taught at Princeton. This group of creatives um, who partnered with Chanel Monet, you know, are part of, um, are, are, are worked centrally to invent this mythology in her early career um, attached to her iconic art, alt, alt ego, um, Cindy Mayweather. Um, and there's a, a longer kind of, you know, deep walk history of that figure. Um, but the liner notes, um, which they wrote um, in conjunction with each of her releases all the way through Dirty Computer, um, have had, have, have included these kinds of many narratives about the songs themselves. And it was a really sort of beautiful and poetic way of um you know, paying tribute to and extending the legacy of the lighter notes traditions of folks like Sun Ra who were producing, you know, poetry that, um, you know, created this sort of alt discursive universe um, that resonates with the sound on the records. Um, Janelle Monet's lighter notes are, are especially striking because um, they tend to, um, especially in the, in the late, in the, um, or some of the later albums, Electric Lady, um, even Arc Android, 
um, Dirty Computer as well. Um, so most of the albums, let's say, um, are, are taking these fragments um, of um, pop culture and citationally melding them together in order to um, document the different kinds of references and allusions and reference resonances that are bound up in the sound. So I was very much drawn to um, the ways that the lighter notes practice became a kind of um, project for extending and opening up and inviting listeners and fans and critics into the broader life world of the recordings themselves. Um, and gave us a gateway into understanding the intellectual project of the music um, in, on these different frequencies. Um, that's one of the many ways that I would I could talk about Janelle Monet, but you know, the other piece of her is that her performance repertoire, especially early on, was you know operating in these spectacular visual and kinesthetic as well as sonic ways as an archive of sound from everyone from James Brown to Little Richard um, to Grace Jones um, are all you know, interpolated into the sights and sounds of, of um, her performance practices. So mm. she's very important to this, to this book in, in a variety of different ways. Yeah, I love Danielle Monáe because apart, apart from anything else, cause I, I was t I love teaching Afrofuturism, and I'd been doing mm. it since the first wave of writing, and that yes. and that black audio film collective film came out in the mid nineties, yeah. and then around yes. around sort of two thousand eight two thousand nine, it was it was starting to seem kind quite old hat, like it was. I was teaching this <laughs> yes. stuff from a few years yes. ago. Jungle Jungle <laughs> wasn't a new thing anymore. It wasn't that exciting. And right. then she brought out that that album, <laughs> The Archangel, and it was a, it was a big hit. And she was talking explicitly. So she completely, uh, yes. I didn't have to write a new lecture. And I still haven't. <laughs> That's <laughs> so. right. Well, you know, the thing about Chuck and Nate, when they came to the class I taught with my colleague, Josh Guild, my former colleague at Princeton, um, which is a survey of black popular, popular music culture. Um, when they came, they, you know, I often, I'm very lucky to have been able to bring many artists to my classes across the years they're some of the first artists. I think John Legend was this way, but not at the same level. I'm just going to be public about mm. this. I mean, he was he was lovely. He gave a lovely lecture about protest music for a different class. But right. Chuck and Nate mm. came and they said, I always offered to say we could do a public conversation. Said, no, we're good. We've got our lecture and we also have a PowerPoint. And we're going to talk about <laughs> some Sartre and some Du Bois to start with, and then we'll see where things go. And I said, oh, my God, I'm handing my class over to you. So, <laughs> That's great. yeah, they, they do the work. They really do the work. Wow. And um, and what is it, maybe we could mention a couple of other of these like contemporary artists, just to, mm. so you can say briefly what is appealing about them. Like Maybe um, mm. Va Valerie June you mentioned, and Rhiannon mm -hmm. Giddens also I think mm -hmm. is really interesting. Mm-hmm. Oh, can we talk about Cecile McLaurin? Oh, Lando? yeah, please, yeah. Go I'm on. a stan. Okay. I can't believe all these Gen Zers have now got me using, making <laughs> reference to an Eminem song I never liked. So, <laughs> no, no. you know, wow, here we are. <laughs> I like to keep our love going long But no matter how much I lied The truth was too strong Cecile McLaurin Sylvain is astounding, astonishing. There isn't enough vocabulary in the West um, to capture um, the scope and breadth of what she does as um, a jazz vocalist and songwriter and performer. She's also a visual artist. If I'd, if I'd had more time and space in this long ass book, I would have talked about and included some of her visual art um, in, at the close of, of the book. Um, and she's also the last figure in the, in the book in terms of the chapters. There's an epilogue on Lemonade, as every epilogue should be about Lemonade. Many epilogues are about Emily, at Lemonade at this point. Um, but Selma Corrin Sylvant is, 
Um, she is Haitian, French, um, American, raised in Florida, um, you know, trained in part in France, um, classically trained, and just the, the biggest archive wonk that you could ever possibly meet and imagine, um, who's also a jazz vocalist at this point, um, in the sense that she's someone who decided very early on in her career that she was interested in and committed to not only being able to sing her way through the American songbook as, you know, any good jazz artist is going to do for a variety of different reasons and with the kind of will to improvise in all sorts of um, exhilarating ways, but that she wanted to go back to the old songs that nobody wanted to sing songs from blackface musical theater the music of African Americans who were performing in blackface, like the um, pathbreaking pioneering genius Burt Williams and his song "Nobody," which is about dispossession and Jim Crow and um, anti-blackness and um, the will towards citizenship and humanity. I mean, everyone should, you know, Google Cecile McCord and Savant on Soundcheck, um, WNYC Soundcheck, doing her version of Burt Williams' "Nobody." Um, she also uh, is known for singing songs that are um, taboo, socially and, and politically taboo. Um, again, anti-Black songs, um, songs about self-loathing. Um, if I Were White, Josephine Baker, one of, Joseph, one of the songs from, one of the jams from Josephine Baker's repertoire. Um, you know, <laughs> The Light of so Snow, another forgotten jazz um, genius who Rosetta Wrights had recuperated, um, who, you know, performed songs about primitivism in jazz. Um, Cecil McCord and Selvant went back to those songs. She, you know, pulled out a Burt Bacharach song about wives and lovers, which is a deeply misogynist song. She will sing that material. And so nobody was really surprised. Well, no, let me, let me edit that and say, I, <laughs> I wasn't surprised when we attended a performance of hers at jazz at Lincoln center in 2017 in New York city. when she said, announced to the crowd, I'm going to edit that again. When she began singing without announcing to the crowd, um, Jelly Roll Morton's 30-minute um, profane-laden queer murder ballad incarceration song entitled Murder Ballad. I mean, it is just one blue lyric after another. And, you know, you do kind of experience what my colleague Nate Chinnon, um, formerly of the New York Times, incredible jazz critic, um, has called a bardic trance, um, sitting for um, some of Cecil McClure and Savant's performances. And that was certainly the case for this song, which has, you know, every possible profanity you could imagine. And yet this is a woman who also sings like, a combination of Sarah Vaughn, Nancy Wilson, a little bit of Abby Lincoln, a lot of Ella Fitzgerald, all of that put together. And yet she is her own person and her own artist. And to bring that kind of mellifluousness um, and um, virtuosity to singing these um, um, explosive lyrics is uh, it's it's really something to be witness to. And she is inviting you to bear witness to this history and also this music. Sounds like there are some parallels with Nina Simone, but um, maybe not, I don't know. Yeah, you know, I think that's really true um, as virtuosos go and and the ways in which it's, as any ja great jazz musician and Nina, you know, famously, you know, rejected the label of jazz musician because she was so much more. I think all mm. jazz musicians are mm. so much more mm. than the, the, that label, since the label itself is an anti-black label, jazz originally meaning jizz, you know, you know, projected onto the music, these ideas about sexuality by white listeners. So 
and the sense of Nina and Cecile um, carrying with them this massive apparatus of Black sonic history into the ways that they perform. Yes, absolutely. Mm. Connections mm. there. Mm. Deep connections, robust connections. Yeah. I feel like we need to hear your uh, kind of what you, I don't know if I'm interrupting you, Jim. Sorry. No, I think I know what you're going to no. say. <laughs> <laughs> so why don't you say it then? <laughs> well, this is going to be about Elvi and, and no. Gishi again? Okay. <laughs> well, I, I've, I've got a bigger question, really, and, and I think it's interesting to refer to this, a, this specific example with reference to it, which is, I mean, do you think... Do I mean, do you think that we're at a kind of different historical juncture for sort of black feminist culture generally, both in the in the mainstream and uh, yeah, at, in more experimental contexts, and and what we might call black feminist consciousness? Like, is it you know, is it in a period? Is it are we going through a kind of ascendancy um, in those terms? And what is the place of Beyonce in your your answer to that question? <laughs> Yeah. Oh my God. What? That's a whole podcast episode. It really is. You can what do- are the different you know, ways that I can answer this? I mean, yes, on the one hand, we are at a different moment mm. of ascendancy in terms of an awareness of black feminism's existence. You know, um, the, the ways that public facing discourse has um, both cannibalized black feminist thought, you know, to the extent that intersectionality is thrown around sometimes erroneously too often than I want to count, but at the same time also effectively um, in our everyday world and in lay person's speech, that's powerful. That's, if not ascendancy, it's a, a different level of engagement. Um, with the praxis of black feminism on certain levels, a different level on certain levels. You know, I, I think that one of the many, many reasons why I remain in awe of what Beyonce did in this unprecedented run from the release of her self-titled album, so significant that that was her, her self-titled album, several albums into her solo career. Um, but that self-titled album in 2013, Beyonce, in which, you know, she's dropping into the beat, um, Chimamanda. We teach girls to shrink themselves, to make themselves smaller. We say to girls, you can have ambition, but not too much. You should aim to be successful, but not too successful. Otherwise you will threaten the man. Because I am female, I'm expected to aspire to marriage. I'm expected to make my life choices, always keeping in mind that marriage is the most important. And her her public meditations on black feminism, that just hadn't happened before. (laughs) You know, so I always say to my students, I'm like, we just, there's no recording before that that exists in which you have a black feminist intellectual speech that's like cut and mixed into, you know, a Dirty South, (laughs) you know, um, trap music, pop crossover anthem. That hadn't happened before. Um, It hadn't happened before that a celebrity of any import had gone on an award show and stood up with feminist behind her and, like, you know three different levels of light lighting um, that hadn't happened before Um, a visual album, let alone a visual album that had a kind of global release strategy, like none other before it, a visual album that was working to engage through a variety of different sensorial registers, the conditions of, black women's historical subjugation, as well as the futuristic um, potential for a different planetary arrangement. <laughs> that had never happened. So, so there are things that have never happened before in the phenomenon of what Beyonce did from 2013 through 2016 in particular. Again, just kind of remarkable, a three-year arc that 
we're still feeling the the earth shaking impact of that work flowing through our cultural body politic, our cultural global body politic. On the other hand, and just within the culture industry, you know, we're still kind of looking at this. And I just was thinking about this yesterday, just feeling very sad about the, um, you know, for the most part, a kind of absence of present day acute recognition of how meaningful black women are to popular music culture. You know, we're, we're living in the time of still Adele, still Taylor Swift, and now Olivia Rodrigo. And two out of three of those artists I like. <laughs> you know, I don't, I don't want any of Taylor's versions. I, I have a lot of different feelings about Taylor Swift. But those, you know, the other two I'm okay with. And yet, I, I think, gosh, you know, um, in the wake of Aretha, forward, Aretha, Atlantic Aretha, um, in the wake of the, the soul kind of greats of the 70s, you know, Roberta Flack, I'm just, I'm, I'm just kind of questioning what it means for Beyonce and Rihanna to be, you know, these two otherworldly forces. And then what else is there? There's Cardi B and there's Megan the Stallion. I mean, I think what you say is really is really interesting and, and really true. I mean, one of the one of the things I really um I don't know, I haven't read much kind of commentary about it, but I was quite taken with the homecoming documentary. Yes. And uh, and one of the things that I um, really appreciated about it, especially in trying to get students to start to do some research, so I love yeah. just kind of pl- uh, showing it to my first years, is the yeah. way that, uh, and also to get them to understand that um, there are limits to individualism and that we need to kind of understand ourselves as part of communities, yes. of influence and yes. Uh, creativity and yes know, and, and uh, you know people who are, and people who enable each other and support each yes. other yes and this is what Beyonce does in Homecoming I mean it's the all of the all of the uh, if, if I remember correctly the black and white sections which kind of you know have her reflecting on it's the rehearsal yes. pro the collaborative yeah. rehearsal yeah. process yeah um, uh, it's this yes. tracking back to her time in you know college and the impact of that on her and the stage representation of her music and all of her referencing to black intellectuals yes uh, in particular black female intellectuals who've influenced her that's right and um they are quotations thrown in but they are given some aspects of of context um and it is about kind of situating uh, herself within a, a an idea of a politics which is does remain reasonably unusual for for you know headlining pop you know right. pop sensations no it's very true yeah i mean i i will say tim she she's you know very pointedly said i did not have the opportunity to go to college because i've been working since i was a child and so this is my my chance to you know honor and celebrate you know the culture of not just college but um historically black colleges and universities yeah, exactly, who exactly. have sustained, you know, black intellectual and social communities for yeah. over a century now. Yeah. Um, and, and doing that, she did kind of, you know, create these, these um, alternative networks of, you know, intellectual and aesthetic life that she you know, has talked about missing out on. And, you know, I do want to go back to, to the point that I was raising earlier about where the, Black women artists, when we're you know swallowed up in this moment of you know these white women figures who keep like passing around the best album Grammy like a blunt at this point, you know <laughs> Olivia Rodrigo is going to win next year. We already know that, but um, you know, and then Adele will win the following year, <laughs> and Taylor, whatever. But it's not like there aren't black women artists out there. Mm-hmm. It's about. The, the, the very problem that I was trying to write through and against in the book. Or, you know, are we going to repeat ourselves for the next hundred years? If there's even a next hundred years, given mm. the kind of planetary crises that we're facing. But, mm. you know, what do, how, do we, how do we 
how do we change the the way that we we look after and engage with these artists who are so vital to our how we know ourselves and how we aspire to be with one another you know hmm. i mean i did want to quickly throw in if i may and then then back to you jim is um i mean that, that you know jim asked this question of whether you know we're we're in a, a new moment where you know there's a new recognition of the importance of the contribution of, of black women to popular culture and beyond um and there certainly there does seem to be something going on and then there's the question of you know what lies beneath that and will it is it just a kind of is it one of these kind of you know for want of a better term sort of me, media fashions uh which can and and i think you you do write in the book about the way in which you know there have certainly been plenty of moments historically in which black women have been sort of s- celebrated but they're they're rarely taken seriously um and it also just to kind of add one more thing to kind of rather kind of full comment maybe um yeah there's also the question of power structure you know at what point as you say in the book when what what you've what we've all missed out on is the opportunity for black women to be in the position of power to be the curators rather than to be someone who is you know at the whim of another curator yes yeah no that's exactly right and right and i think that's that's absolutely one of the reasons why I was so drawn to Beyonce, you know, as, as a figure really to, to, um, to spend time with as, as the book closes out and also in relation to the history that I was trying to recuperate in the book, in the book itself, across the, the eight chapters, because um, her ensemble curatorial practices. So like Janelle Monet, she is, She's not alone. She works very closely with this whole range of creatives, but um, their impulses to to think very pointedly and um, exhaustively about how to arrange aesthetically arrange our engagement with history in a way that we can learn something new, not only about the past but about the present and to dream the future for black women and for communities who, who care about black women, that that process is, is, is instructive. It's, it's pedagogical. It's a model for how to think about, you know, building other ways of not only making the music, but, and I say this formulation again, um, looking after the music, the the formulation. Looking after, um, I want to acknowledge my grand and fantastic colleague, the Black feminist queer theorist Kara Keeling, who's written very beautifully about this idea of looking after, um, punning on that formulation to both you know look after something that's come before, but also to care for it. She talks about what it means to be a steward of um, of culture through a variety of different critical. Um, and expressive practices, and all of the people who are not villains in my book, I think, are are, are trying to do that um, and come at that challenge um, from a mul- multiplicity of different standpoints. So, um, one of the things that we also wanted to ask you about uh, that has been of, of significant influence to us is is this uh, is the Questlove documentary film um, Summer of Soul uh, often referred to um, well I think actually sorry the what the film is about is the Harlem Cultural Festival uh, which ran for three years but the 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 peak and culmination of that was the uh, occurred in the summer of 79 is and is often referred to as the as the blackwood stock right summer um, 69 mm-hmm. yeah. uh yeah mm-hmm. and we you know it's a, it's a magn- it's an extraordinary documentary it's com- completely compelling the performances and the, the commentary are compelling and uh we, i would love to hear you know um, your comments about this in particular because i did read uh, a piece you you wrote about um the Harlem Cultural Festival in the in the New York Times, 
um, I think maybe just before the documentary came out, maybe, but I haven't quite checked the sequence, but it was a great piece. So given that we are on the, the topic of, of, you know, black culture, even if we've been focusing more on the contribution of, of black women to uh, popular culture, uh, would love to hear you, your own thoughts on the, the significance of, of that festival and of the, and of the documentary by, by Questlove. Yeah. yeah. Well, thank you. Um, I, I have to thank the New York Times for giving me the opportunity to write about the festival. Um, they came to me and it was such a gift because I, like most people, knew nothing about it. And yeah, I knew nothing about it and, um, you know, spent spent a good few weeks researching it and reaching out to a variety of different creatives in New York who are either aware of it or who were, you know, working on projects that are certainly, you know, part of the legacy of the festival, including um, some of the creatives behind the long running Afropunk festival, which, you know, has all sorts of transatlantic um, iterations uh, um, as well now. And um, it was, that piece ran um, during the 50th anniversary summer of Woodstock. And so there was a real kind of, you know, commitment to on the Times part to ongoing coverage of that anniversary and to think about the wider lens in which we can view that moment of Woodstock and, so the festival came to the fore um, as this untold story. I mean, in a separate separate context, I've worked with Amir Thompson, um, been very lucky to work with him a couple of times. Um, the first time we met was right before he and his band, The Roots, um, became the house band for The Tonight Show, Jimmy Fallon's The Tonight Show. And it was after James Brown had passed and I invited him, I invited Greg Tate, I believe, he and my dear friend Greg Tate met at the conference. At least it was one of the first times, if not the first time, they had ever met and spent time together. I remember, I remember Amir asking Questlove. No, sorry, I remember Amir asking Greg Tate about what's Robert Christgau really like. So that was like a moment of deep, <laughs> deep black, black wonkishness that. <laughs> It was really fun to be at the dinner table because Chris Gow was also there. And so, um, <laughs> but um, so he and I worked together for that event. And then he also came to the David Bowie and Prince conference, which I organized in January of 2017 here at Yale. So he and I worked together. I had no idea he was working on this film and I didn't have any conversation with him about the festival when I was working on the piece. So it just felt beautiful and serendipitous and also completely not surprising at all that he would, you know, have been working on this project, which is a masterpiece in which I hope wins every possible award this coming year. And I hope when he, I hope and trust when he wins the at least best Oscar documentary award. If Todd Haynes wins for Velvet Underground, there will be there will there will be a lot of feelings, <laughs> um, but I hope he dedicates the word to to Greg. Um, I know mm. he'll say something lovely. Um, mm. So I um, wanted to be able to, in my own writing about the festival, um, think panoramically, uh, um, which is how the film kind of you know, speaks to me as well. Think panoramically, panoramically about the festival, meaning to be able to capture um, what was indelible about the performances, but also the um, key role, the central role, um, the, um, you know, indispensable role of the audience and the community and the making mm. of those performances. Mm-hmm. And to try to thread that needle was something that I felt like was important to do. And I, I remember writing it and feeling just um, so humbled by the idea of the beauty of community being able to come together in the way that it did in in the run of so much grief as, you know, a, a, a 
blood-soaked decade in the midst of a blood-soaked history of struggle was coming this, to this a close. Was a, it, was, yeah, it was a year after the death of uh, the assassination of Martin Luther King, right? So, right, and just, and, you know, and, and, what and a decade that, of, you know, yeah. a very public, you know, slaughtering of leaders, you know, Medgar Evers, Malcolm X, you know, as well as, you know, just young people who were, you know, so devoted to the movement, you know, Schwerner, Cheney, and Goodman in Mississippi. So there is all of that, that pain and turmoil and struggle and resistance that is coursing through that moment. And, you know, we use this formulation holding a space for things. Now I think it's a really striking and, you know, important and um, provocative formulation and the event itself, those concerts was about holding space and also even in the context of holding space and memorializing as black folks have had to do since the boat touched the soil in 1619, um, we've also been able to use that holding space as a site of transmogrification. Um, and that's what Black Sound you know, has been able to um, provide for us so radically is the ability to imagine a kind of, you know, perpetual mode of transforming um, and fugitivity and escape from present emergency. Um, you know, the kind of twinning of emergence and emergency is another formulation or, you know, pairing, conceptual pairing that often comes up in black studies. Fred Moden has written about it, many other people. And I think that that is something that you, that the film bears witness to um, and that I was trying to bear witness to in the writing is that kind of twin, the intersections of emergence and emergency in that moment. Yeah, I mean, just for, I mean, it's, you know, it's beautifully, beautifully said, uh, just for listeners who um, don't, haven't quite drawn some of the lines here, um, Amir Thompson is Questlove. Um, and um, and the archive these this forty hours of footage um, that was that, that was uh, of the of this I think it was was it a series of five or six concerts held over that summer lay in the archives untouched and almost unknown about uh, for um, you know since since you know indeed around the time that I guess you were writing. This article and, and Questlove, I guess, was getting access to the to this archives, and it, it the, the the film, of course, does you know raise this question of how there could be so much celebration of of the Woodstock Festival and the, you know, the Harlem Cultural Festival, which attracted pretty much the same, if not more, audience members, uh, remained completely unheard of for all of that period. So I think that's you know just something to kind of give some emphasis to and I really um you know I was I, the experience of watching this film was um it was it did give me a feeling of complete elation um the music and the color uh the commentary the the what, looking at the or being being given the privilege of, of of listening to the participants from musicians to audience members reflecting back on the feeling of being there and what it meant for that community in the in the New York Times piece, you described uh, it as a black sound utopia, and also referenced the way that this was sort of black pop as a transformative event. And I just wanted to just say something that is, you know, almost again out there for the listeners, and I, I think just for Gemma myself, really, is that you know this is really what we we you know and the parties we organise, what we write about, this is what we we feel committed to. It's this ability to have this transformative experience uh, through something which I think you know is is really count really at core countercultural. So, and you know, yeah, so right, and to be together. I mean, this is something that you know it was literally illegal for us to gather as captives in this country, mm. and so to be able to have these public spaces in which we gathered, you know, over a stretch of weeks and held this kind of circle around 
the cultural forms that have kept us alive and to witness that kind of witnessing and that kind of exchange of knowledges that the music conveys to the masses and that the masses then give back antiphonally to the performers is just remarkable and so necessary you know, all the time, but particularly in that moment, um, it's just, it's, it's the fact that nobody cared enough, you know, as, as Amir has talked about in different interviews to, to actually recognize the value, um, and the historicity of that kind of, um, phenomenon it's a crime and it's also not surprising. <laughs> it's not surprising at all. Um, but it, it feels like a gift that, that, that we could have, have it returned to us now with a kind of force and with the platform that Questlove has to be able to circulate this thing such that the New Yorker can call it the best film of the year, you know, where is the New Yorker covering this event in 69, you know? so And is it significant that that's happening now rather than at some other time? I mean, is this, and if, is this something, you know, the event of the film being oh, made? Oh, sure. Or... We know why it's happening now. You know, I mean, honestly, it's, it's, it's a confluence of things, right? But it's both Obama and Trayvon, you know, and, and what hath been wrought in the wake of both of their legacies is heartbreaking on the one hand and as hope and change, you know, um, resonant on the other hand, as these two figures have been in the early 21st century. But, you know, out of these twinned and entangled legacies in the new millennium have come the conditions in which the culture industry to bring it back around has, has chosen to be more mindful of this thing that has been in front of them all along. And maybe they've been forced to be. Right. Some of them, some have been forced, but there is a, there is a choice. They still have with all that power. It's still a choice. Um, Right. And it's attached to capital, of course. Yeah, I mean, it's all tied to this moment. It's all tied to this moment. Whether it will last is always the cliffhanger. Yeah. Um, I mean, I know this is this is difficult, but uh, one of the most powerful of of, of the commentators uh, in Summer of Love uh, was was your you know that was the the great writer, um, black music writer. What did I say? Sorry. Summer of Soul. Oh, Summer of Love. I'm sorry. I Let do me that start that You said again. Summer of Love. I'll <laughs> <laughs> well, do it, yeah. Right. Sorry. Um, so I know, this, I know this is difficult, but one of the most uh, compelling figures in Summer of Soul um, is your, your good friend and, uh, you know, the very influential and brilliant uh, black music writer, Greg Tate, uh, who passed away very recently and quite, quite shockingly. And... Um, we just wanted to um, open up some space to acknowledge, um, you know, the influence of Greg as a writer, and uh, you know the the sadness that we that we feel um, at, at his loss, and to, but also to ask you to you know maybe share some some thoughts with us as someone who was also particularly close to Greg and and maybe but also particularly you know influenced by his writing and and. His generosity, as as you wrote in um, a, a piece mm. that you you contributed um, mm. following his his passing. Yeah, thank you. The greatest to ever do it. I mean, John Caramonica wrote in the Times recently. A really, his beautiful tribute to Greg. Um, it's my favorite thing he's ever written, as it should be. Um, we are all children of of Greg's. Um, we don't exist. Our, the kind of writing that I do does not exist without Greg Tate. And so in Summer of, of Love, 
summer of soul. And so in summer of soul and summer of soul, um, he's the only critic commentator. Now, you know, we've been having all sorts of conversations about fans as critics and I believe that. And it's just so, so beautiful. Um, that, Questlove was able to connect with and recuperate all these folks who bore witness to the event and participated in the making of the event as fans and audience members. But Greg is the only working critic in the film, and that is exactly how it should be. He's all you need. He's all you need. And um, His writing is the manifestation of that event. Every single note to the page, and by note I mean word, since words were notes, is a manifestation of that moment and the history that's stored up in that moment that was the festival. Yeah, that's great. I, I mean, he was a huge influence on us as well, I'm sure, like individually collectively uh, i was even a fan of his band burnt sugar no i mean i i i mean i mean a couple things about burnt sugar i'll say one of i did an early essay in the emp collection first emp collection that eric weisbart emp conference collection that eric weisbart edited um that was he gave my essay that's about Black Rock and Black Satire, Burnt Sugar. Okay, so, and Greg contacted me later and is like, hey, where's that essay that you wrote about the band? And I was like, it's actually not about the band. It's so weird that you have to include this. <laughs> but um, now Burnt Sugar was the sonic accompaniment to Greg's entire intellectual revolutionary life world. And what I loved so much about that fugitive, revolutionary, always changing, always urgent and necessary and emergent ensemble was that the music was such a, an excellent example of what criticism can look like as it's performed you know when he spoke at Yale for our um, Black Star Black Star Rising in the Purple Rain, Prince and Bowie conference in memoriam. He showed all this great footage of Tony Visconti in the studio recording. Now he played it. I'm sorry, let me be correct about this. He played, he played some of the outtakes from the Heroes sessions, which just stopped us all in our tracks. But then he closed his remarks by playing um, it's one of my favorite, I, I'm gonna, I, it's just one of my favorite all time performances. It's, um, burnt sugar, one of the many different versions of, um, them covering, um, rock and roll suicide. Give me your hand. Burnt Sugar often had a rotating, you know, series of, uh, of vocalists, um, many of whom were just uh, powerhouse black women artists. And he played this version from 2011, this performance they did. And there wasn't a dry eye in the room. And um, I felt like that, arm of what he did was a way of always 
pushing us to the edge of our imagination and being able to meet the history of music that he was always so rigorously and boldly um, writing about in ways that no one had ever written about. Um, the burnt sugar performances were a way of, of meeting that history on the playing field and archiving it and then handing it to us to look after. Um, yeah. He, one of the last um, set of performances of burnt sugars that he sent to me were the Gershwin performances. Um, they did, they did Porgy and Bess, which is important to me because that's my next book is on black women artists and Porgy and Bess. And he just sent me like a zip drive of all of that work. And it's oh, just incredible. So. Oh, fantastic. And finally, I guess, I mean, it would be strange. Again, it's to let the moment pass. We've been talking for two hours about a book, which is from an explicitly black feminist perspective. Uh, and it would be strange to say nothing about the fact that we lost uh, Bell Hooks yesterday. I mean, arguably the key figure of black feminism in the English-speaking world. One, one of the key. Uh, of of one recent of, decades. One, one, yes. I mean, I think that we want to... We always want to resist the singular and the monumental, right? So, yeah. yeah. But certainly, you know, the thing about her, and I don't think any of us have come to terms with, I, it's just, I'm, I'm still, it's just, it's, there's not, I don't have sentences for any of this loss. Um, what I can say about, bell hooks in terms of her contributions to our everyday thinking world is that she was one of the pioneers of public facing dialogue about black feminisms um, and kind of returning us to where the black feminist literary and grassroots renaissance of the seventies had been so the Kambahi River Collective, um, as well as all of the novelists who were breaking through in the 70s and whose work was being passed around as the late Barbara Christian always reminded us, you know, in beauty salons and in, outside of churches and, you know, on, you know, at weekend gatherings and picnics, the work of Toni Morrison and Ntosaki Shanke and Alice Walker and Gail Jones, et cetera, et cetera, Audre Lorde. Um, Bell Hooks kind of returned us to that moment. Um, it was necessary in the 80s, in the early, in the late 70s, and the early 80s to break through into the all white ivory tower and do this kind of unprecedented institutional rearrangement, you know, by the entry of black feminists into the Academy in the seventies and eighties was absolutely necessary. And I think what bell hooks work represents is the importance of then being able to turn around and smuggle some things back out to the masses um, to use Fred Moden's formulation very loosely here to paraphrase him. So she was about smuggling and reattuning ourselves to these broader publics who, 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 who needed the, the labor that we were doing inside of these spaces in order to create change. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's very persuasive. Yeah. I mean, she's certainly, I mean, she, to my mind, she became, she became a figure for sort of, I, I think, um, for a lot of people younger than me, like a lot, a lot younger than me, she became a figure who was able to carry that partly because she had, was occupying this stable place in the academy really she was able to carry some of that that liberatory and revolutionary spirit of the liberation struggles of the 70s mm -hmm. like it, you know and translate it into an idiom that made sense had a certain both had academic authority but also was publicly was was understandable yes. and comprehensible to people in the 90s and the 2000s absolutely uh in a fairly unique way like i i and she's somebody who had a sort of she was and I mean, at a moment when so many of the kind of stars of theory, mm. like, were seen as in, as marking right. some kind of break, 
with the politics of the liberation yeah. struggles and the moment of the liberation right. struggles. She always marked a, a crucial point of continuity. And yeah, you know, she, w- yeah, no, that was beautifully put, Jim. And 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 that's I couldn't agree with you more. And that's what I mean by, you know, her kind of her commitment to doing public facing work. You know, it was a kind of it was a return to the ethos of black freedom struggles that, you know, people made different kinds of choices about where they wanted to situate themselves in relation to the struggle. And she was, you know, kind of moving the dial to a different place. I'm not even necessarily back, but fusing those two realms, you know, she also worked very quickly and prolifically for a good stretch of time. So there was, you know, there was a new bell hooks book, you know, every couple of years or so yeah. for a while she had in the 30 90s. Books, I think more than um, 30 books. It's like extraordinary. Yeah. I mean, right. Yeah. Which is incredible. Yeah, yeah. It's extraordinary. And I think that pace as well as her choices about where she published, mm. um, you know, is one of the many reasons why, you know, we have that, that lexicon in which people are widely conversant now, you know, with black feminist ideas. And she, you know? she remained radical. She didn't soften, uh, you know, indeed we, we, no. we I think before we started to record mentioned, uh, you know, her, uh, the piece that she published about yes. Le- uh, Beyonce's lemonade yeah. and uh, she, yeah, and she, she you know, lemonade, she remained, yeah. Uh, yeah. A, you know, she was always aware of the importance of kind of remaining or retaining a critical edge and um that's right i mean in a way she was you know herstonian in that sense mm. you know she she was um she walked mm. her own path you know she made her own path and then walked it yeah yeah it's a real loss i mean both of these people i will just say um we lost them in their 60s we lost them when they were young and um that is um that's just something I don't, I don't know how we'll be able to ever repair, you know, the, the, the work that we still long for and need from them. So maybe, maybe pick up the torch and keep going to honor what they, what they gave to us. This has been fantastic, Daphne. Thanks. Thank you both. It's a really rich, rich discussion and the, of a book, which is just so um, thoroughly, thoroughly correct <laughs> as well as being thoroughly informative about you know about such an important set of topics and uh, it's really been fantastic to have you as our first into our first interview <laughs> i don't i don't know what is gonna i don't know what's gonna um i don't know what's gonna like, no. match this. oh no thank you both this is so generous of you i have been thinking everyone who's spent any time with the book because it it's it does uh, demand some time. And so thank you for, for taking that time. And um, it's an honor and a privilege to be in conversation with you. Yeah, well, just to echo what, what Jim says is, you know, thank you. It's been, it's been, it's been a journey. It's been, you know, beautiful. Um, it's been moving. Uh, the book is so incredibly, you know, rich in excavating these in, in very important stories and, and as well as providing a kind of, you know, a, a kind of broad an analytical perspective on why it is also important uh, and, and needs to be needs to be kept alive. And you know your tributes um, to Greg and to Bell Hooks have also you know you know spoke spoke a, a similar you know analytic combination of a you know dedication to to the culture and uh, you know uh, emotional connection to the to the to the culture and a kind of understanding of its of its significance as well so just and you've been very very generous incredibly generous with your time oh, yeah. um, so thank you so much Daphne uh, thank you, really grateful and we just want to you know urge every listener um, to this to the to these episodes uh to to go and buy line of line notes to revolution um and to you know read as much uh greg tate and bell hooks as well as you possibly can can manage because these are you know it's, it's all incredibly important work so thank you definitely <laughs>